back to the modern democracy it is so wonderful to have you here with me today oh my gosh i cannot even believe how long it's been since i've said that and i cannot tell you how much i have missed podcasting and rejuvenating this political podcast so after taking quite a long break due to the completion of my hsc and then getting into a very lengthy battle with my podcast hosting service I am very excited to announce the return of the Modern Democracy fresh and ready with many great planned episodes for 2023. And what better way is there than to return for this new year with some sharp political analysis on what is going to be a key parliamentary and national issue, and that is the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. Today I'm going to be explaining what our Labour government is proposing when it comes to the Indigenous Voice, how it's going to function in our world, and examine the arguments for and against. And I think this episode is going to be a really important one, and I hope it is one that will aid you in combating the media circus of misinformed and arguably racist vitriol that is about to plague the nation on this issue in the coming months. Unfortunately, I think there is no denying that in the Australian political landscape, or even in any Western political landscape today for that matter, issues that often face marginalised communities become what we call politicised. Key figures and the media will take human rights issues and the needs and identities of certain groups and turn them into a figure of political debate when, in fact, the rights of Indigenous people to be respected on a land where sovereignty was never ceded shouldn't be something that is up for political debate. We are undoubtedly going to be approaching a time in politics where big media actors and key conservative figures will play into what I'm going to call low-effort thinking, using fear-mongering, our national affinity for white Australian exceptionalism, and the creation of downright false political arguments that don't actually engage in critical thinking with what the voice at its core really is. So today I'm setting out to do my best to condense these conflicting issues, voices and perspectives that we see today on the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. And I'm hopefully going to shed some light on what the Indigenous Voice actually is, and I'm really going to try my best to do this justice. So with no further ado, let's get straight into today's episode. First up, what is the Indigenous Voice to Parliament? Well, according to Linda Burney, who is our current Labour Minister for Indigenous Affairs, the Voice is going to be an independent, representative body for First Nations people in the Australian Federal Parliament. This means that there would be a group of elected people coming from all Indigenous communities nationwide who would report to the government on the spiritual, economic and social needs of Indigenous Australians. And while this voice will technically be one big national advisory group, it's also set to have three mini-advisory groups built into it, one on youth, one on disability and one on a small Indigenous ethics council. How the voice will operate is that when the government passes laws that might relate to certain issues that affect the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community, for example, things like native title, heritage protection, employment or targeted community development programs, they would need to consult this voice or advisory body for formal advice. So therefore, the voice in its purest form is an advisory council that will be consulted on matters relating to the formation of Indigenous policy. It will not, I will repeat, it will not be some kind of third parliamentary body that delivers government services, manages funds, conducts research, or will act as a mediator if there is a dispute between Indigenous organisations. 
the main goals and the values that the National Voice is trying to promote, according to the 2018 Joint Select Committee Report on Constitutional Recognition, is number one, empowerment. It's to give First Nations people self-determination, greater authority, and simply a say in matters that affect them. The second one is inclusive participation, bringing together a diverse integration of voices, communities, and organizations, and to break down barriers to participation in political life by bringing the needs of First Nations people that have been historically excluded to the forefront of our national conversation. Goal and value, according to the report, is cultural leadership. It's to platform emerging Indigenous community leaders. The fourth one is transparency and accountability. By holding governments accountable for the decisions they make on Indigenous issues, we're going to make sure that they can do enough by platforming Indigenous voices in federal parliament. And the fifth one, and the most probably the most important one, is data and evidence-based decision-making, providing evidence-based advice and shared cultural decision-making to help governments form laws that are actually responsive, respond to current issues, and are effective in targeting the needs of Indigenous communities across the nation. From what we know now, the National Voice is set to have 24 members from different regions in Australia with an equal gender balance that is going to be structurally guaranteed. This means that there is going to be an equal proportion of men and women in this National Voice. So the proposed version outlines that there would be two members from each state, that's including the Northern Territory, the ACT and the Torres Strait as well. There would also be five extra members from remote Indigenous communities to represent what's been described as unique needs. These are from the Northern Territory, South Australia, New South Wales, Western Australia and Queensland. The voice, if passed via referendum, would have members of this advisory council body getting elected every four years and each member is only allowed to run twice. So now that we know kind of how the voice is structured, what its main objectives are, in order for the Indigenous voice to be official in Australian government, we know it's going to require a referendum. And if you're not sure what that is, I have an entire episode explaining the mechanisms of our federal parliament in a really simple fashion. But in short, a referendum is a vote to change the constitution. And we know that the constitution is what organises our entire nation's government, its powers and its different responsibilities at a state and a federal level. Because the Labor government is seeking to make this a permanent advisory body, it's going to require adding some lines into the Constitution to separate and demarcate these new powers. These proposed lines are as follows. There would be, number one, there shall be a body called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice. Number two, it may make representations to Parliament and the Executive Government, which we know are the Ministers, PM and Governor-General, on matters relating to the Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander community. And number three, the Parliament shall, subject to the Constitution, have the power to make laws with respect to the composition, functions, powers and procedures of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice. These are the exact words that the Labor government is planning to add into the Constitution in order to legislate this national voice. But moving on from that, interestingly enough, there is also a plan to have not only a national voice to Parliament to represent the interests of Indigenous Australians at a federal level, but we may also be seeing a network of local and regional frameworks that are going to work in our states and our councils. The idea is to divide Australia as a country into 35 voice regions that is yet to be determined, and these will be comprised of family groups, community working parties, regional assemblies, stakeholders, and Indigenous individuals and organisations, led by a secretariat or what they call a backbone team, who can then report to regional and national voices on issues that are affecting them. No set number of members has been proposed for this yet at the local and regional level, but this is a requirement that will need to be set out in state legislation or it will have to be passed by state parliament in order for this to become a new tangible voice. 
Okay, so now that we know what the voice actually is, what our government is proposing for it to be, how is it going to work in the Australian government? And theoretically speaking, what are the implications going to be? And interestingly enough, why do people and why do our Labor government want this to actually happen? Well, the first thing that I can think of that is really quite obvious about The Voice is that it's going to bridge the disconnect between government policies and Indigenous communities. In my opinion, personally, I think if we look back at Australian political history, even when we've had successive governments that have tried to implement, you know, quality programs for Indigenous communities like the Close the Gap targets, there has still always been this kind of barrier between what governments think First Nations people need and what First Nations communities actually need. Hopefully, this voice is something that is going to be able to bridge that disconnect and actually bring about some meaningful change. Second thing is, as I mentioned earlier, is transparency and accountability. The Indigenous voice is considered by many as a real, really positive step towards increasing the pressure on Australian governments to kind of end this constant lip service about Indigenous issues and actually start creating evidence-based policies that are going to be effective. And I think by having this advisory body, we know that governments are going to be legally obliged to consult with Indigenous Australians in the early stages of bill writing. This means that we can bring First Nations needs to the centre of democracy, and then we can start increasing the pressure on our current government to act. And then the third thing is, I actually think it's really symbolic. I think while previous governments have argued that, you know, the constitutional referendum is a waste of money, I think if decades ago we as a nation acknowledged in our highest offices that Indigenous people are here and that we respect their cultural authority, their needs and their livelihoods, story as a country would be very different today. I think if we have a voice that is enshrined in the constitution, then we are respecting the rights of Indigenous people in this country in a very symbolic fashion. And the fourth thing is its likelihood in revitalising what we call Indigenous nation building. This means that First Nations people are able to strengthen their capacity for effective self-government and restore their right to autonomy and positive economic development opportunities. If we choose to create a culturally aware institution like The Voice, it's definitely predicted to lead to a new wave of self-determination and empowerment for Indigenous communities by giving them a say over issues that affect them. Whilst we know that there might be many positives to the Indigenous voice in the things that I've just talked about, as with, you know, any kind of big legal or constitutional reform, we usually have ample opposition. You can kind of group this opposition into two main schools of thought. So we have one group proposing that the Indigenous voice is not enough, and we have another group proposing that the Indigenous voice is too much. The first group proposing that the Indigenous voice is not enough is represented by maybe key figures you've heard in the media like Green Senator Lydia Thorpe or journalist Amy Maguire. Lydia Thorpe has described the voice as a waste of money, as the cost in changing the constitution might limit the money governments can currently spend on Indigenous communities. She's also stated that the final clause that will be voted on, stating that the government will still have a legal control over the structure of the Indigenous voice, as I mentioned above, the right for Parliament to control the procedures of the advisory body, something that is not allowing for sovereignty or complete autonomy from the state of Australia, which many Indigenous people actually advocate for. Instead, she and other First Nations people are advocating for a treaty in conjunction with the voice to get what she describes as quote-unquote true power. So she kind of believes that we need to have a treaty, a binding obligation signed between white Australia and First Nations people, recognising the rights of Indigenous people as the custodians and first owners of this land, and the obligations of the government to First Nations people is what is needed in a legally binding agreement. So while she recently has come out and said that she will support The Voice, she's really pushing for the government to do more. 
Amy Maguire, interestingly enough, is also an example of the opposition to the Indigenous voice for not doing enough. In her article titled Recognising the Artful Con that is the Constitutional Reform Debate, she noted that the largely white government telling Indigenous Australians that the voice is what they need to accept is what she called a rebranding of paternalism. Acknowledging the voice of Indigenous people in the Constitution is simply not going to be enough to deal with the trauma and the intergenerational trauma that has been imposed by colonisation for centuries. She also noted that black and white Australia can't move forward until there is a reconciliation of history and a true reconciliation, until we as white Australians start recognising and start calling colonisation invasion instead of some kind of settlement, and that because of this incompatibility of our histories, the voice may not work. In her words, recognition does precisely nothing in addressing any great Australian silence. It instead helps entrench it by further silencing dissenting voices. Treaty is a true Aboriginal aspiration, but it's one that has been constantly denied, replaced with recognition. So while many Indigenous individuals and communities do support the voice, many really do believe that a treaty is needed for true justice, and that without a treaty or a truth-telling commission added onto this, the voice may be just another attempt for white Australia to try and silence the aspiration for an Indigenous treaty and work to repress their autonomy. In the other school of thought, we have people who think that the voice is really just doing too much. This opposition, I've noticed, tends to centre on two main arguments. These being, number one, it's going to take away the rights of everyone else and give special rights to Indigenous people on the basis of their heritage. And then because of this, we won't be equal anymore under the Constitution and its discrimination. However, we know that this isn't necessarily true. These kinds of race-based arguments like these are simply a reaction to a group challenging white supremacy. The voice we know from what I said earlier is not actually giving anyone special rights. What it's doing is recognizing that since this nation has been built on white supremacy, there has always been a power imbalance between white Australia and First Nations people. And because of this, an advisory council is beneficial to equalize this imbalance. Frankly, if any government makes laws in relation to any particular group of people, it's imperative that they consult that said group to make sure that the impacts are going to be positive. And no, the Indigenous voice does not override your constitutional guarantee to equality. The government is adding in things, not taking anything away. And at the end of the day, amplifying the needs of Indigenous Australians is not discrimination on any basis, and in fact it's quite the opposite. It's called being culturally aware and recognising that power dynamics impact the ability of Indigenous Australians to access the same outcomes as everyone else, and that uplifting others is what we need to change. The second argument that usually comes up a lot is there's quote-unquote not enough detail. This is one of the reasons that the National Party and David Littleproud and Jacinta Price have publicly opposed the voice. They just believe that it's not clear what the government's trying to do, it won't do enough, and then due to this, people shouldn't vote for it. To be honest, I don't even want to get into this one because I think we all know that it's a bit of a cop-out. There actually is a lot of detail and there have been many reports published about it. I just sometimes think people don't do enough research and don't go out of their way to maybe learn about things that exist beyond the realm of their own world. So that officially concludes our episode today on the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. I've tried to keep this super short so it's nice and digestible for everyone, and we talked about Labor's proposal for the Indigenous Voice, how it will function, and what its general implications may be if Australia chooses to vote yes to the referendum. We looked into the opposition to the voice and the arguments that were for and against it. 
And I really hope you found this episode helpful and I hope it can guide you in making your own independent decision as we approach this topic of constitutional reform later, potentially in August or September. Feel free to send this episode around to any friends and family who you feel might find this helpful or interesting as well. Thank you so much for listening and I really hope to see you soon. (laughs) 